Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. The Boxcar of Fun. Explanatory Note. As I explained at the start of the first volume of these memoirs, which were entitled The Fun Factory, they came into my hands quite by chance. When my wife and I moved into our house in Streatham, we became friendly with the elderly lady who lived in the ground-floor flat next door, a Mrs Lander. One day we happened to be talking about my interest in comedy and comedians, and she said, Of course my grandfather knew Charlie Chaplin. Really? I said. Oh yes, Mrs Lander said. They were really quite thick, apparently. Eventually Mrs Lander moved to a residential care home and then, a few months later, her daughter dropped round to tell us that sadly she'd passed away. She wanted me to thank you for your kindness, the daughter said, and asked me to make sure you had this. The battered old trunk she left me, which was brown, reinforced by wooden ribs and secured by what looked like an army belt, had been used as a repository for the memorabilia of a career treading the boards. There were wooden swords and shields in the Roman style and a lion skin somewhat past its best. There was also a big black cape of the sort you might see a magician wearing, and a top hat, and a mechanical contraption with a couple of off-white feathers clinging to it. Underneath all this, lying flat at the bottom of the trunk, were posters from old music hall and vaudeville bills, mostly featuring the sketches of the great Fred Carnot. Tucked in amongst these charming relics were old black-and-white photographs of groups of young men and women posing together, often in front of, or hanging out of, a railway carriage. Who were they, I wondered, and what had they been doing? I inspected the old photographs more closely. Surely that dapper young fellow with a toothy smile was Charlie Chaplin. And who was that one, standing over to one side, captured in an instant, glowering at young Chaplin, as though he would cheerfully throttle him until his eyes popped out? Well, the answers were to be found in a brown leather satchel right at the bottom of the trunk, in the memoirs of the owner, one Arthur Dando, comedian. The first volume of these, The Fun Factory, covered the period in which Dando worked for Fred Carnot in the Edwardian music halls of Great Britain, Carnot, who called himself the Governor, was the entrepreneur king of the British Music Hall. Arthur joined his organisation at the same time as another young hopeful called Charlie Chaplin, and both developed the same burning ambition to rise to become the next number one comic of a Carnot company. Charlie, however, was not content to let the matter be resolved in a fair fight. He used any number of underhand methods and downright dirty tricks to undermine not only Arthur's chances of advancement with Carnot, but also his blossoming romance with a beautiful young actress called Tilly Beckett. Arthur eventually discovered what Charlie had been up to and threatened to expose him to the governor unless he dropped out of an upcoming tour of America. In the event, it turned out that leaving Charlie behind would not only be the ruin of Arthur's bitter rival, but also of his good friend, Alf Reeves, the company manager, and so Arthur relented. He found Charlie, unshaven, drunk and wallowing in despair, and hurried him to join the rest of the American Carnot company on board ship. The two rivals were then all set to cross the Atlantic together in a state of uneasy truce. This is where the second volume, The Boxcar of Fun, begins. It covers the period from autumn 1910 to the end of 1913, when Arthur Dando, Charlie Chaplin, Tilly Beckett and their friend Stanley Jefferson were touring the United States in Fred Carnot's comedy company during what was the golden era of American vaudeville. 
I have no reason to doubt that the memoirs represent a truthful account, and where Dando touches upon verifiable historical fact, he is invariably accurate, considerably more so than his contemporary managed in his 1964 autobiography at any rate. Indeed, this memoir covers a period very swiftly, one might also say dismissively, dealt with in that hefty volume. Readers can judge whether or not Dando is to be believed regarding more personal matters. Chapter 1. Off to America. We were all gathered on the foredeck for our first proper sighting of the New World, a faint grey strip on the distant horizon, when our number one comic suddenly astonished us all by leaping up onto the railing, throwing his arms wide and declaiming, "'America, I am coming to conquer you. Every man, woman and child shall have my name on their lips. Charles Spencer Chaplin!' The company hooted good-naturedly at this almighty hubris, and the little fellow turned to give us a mocking bow and a flourish, his dark mop of hair whipping wildly in the wind. "'You do know that's Canada, don't you?' I called out, raising a pretty decent laugh at his expense, I thought. I glanced over to see if Tilly was laughing, or at least smiling, and she was, she was, she was smiling the smile that only she could smile, the smile that had haunted my dreams since we first met at Fred Carno's fun factory, the smile that warmed my heart and my loins and could make me feel like everything was going to be all right.' But was she smiling that smile for me, or was she smiling it for him? Pfft! Canada! America! What's the difference? Charlie scoffed with a dismissive wave. Albert Austin, his ever-faithful beanpole lapdog, was preparing to capture the moment with his trusty box camera, but he wasn't quick enough with the tripod legs. Charlie had already leapt back down onto the deck and grabbed a lifebelt, which he slung around his neck. Look at me! he cried. I'm Monsieur Maldemere! He tousled his hair and slumped against the railing in an extravagant pantomime of seasickness, while his acolyte scrambled to capture this fresh comedy gem from the master for posterity. He was trying. I had to give him that. It was the October of 1910, and the famous Fred Carno Comedy Company, of which I was a member, were travelling to New York to begin a tour of the United States. We were supposed to have made the crossing in the lap of luxury on board the RMS Lusitania, no less, the pride of the Cunard line and holder of the Blue Ribbond, and would indeed have done so if only Mr Chaplin had turned up on time. We had all boarded and had enjoyed a tantalising glimpse of our obscenely luxurious cabins, first class thanks to a deal done by our company manager Mr Alf Reeves, whereby we would provide entertainment for the swells, before it was all whisked away and we were unceremoniously disembarked with our trunks onto the quay at Liverpool, dreaming wistfully of gold taps. The whole company had then been obliged to traipse down to Southampton to catch this ailing rust bucket instead, once the tardy chaplain had been located, by me as it happens, located and delivered, but not forgiven by his colleagues, not by any means. Because, you see, the SS Ken Rona was not exactly the absolute apex where transatlantic travel was concerned. In point of fact, it was a converted cattle boat, and they hadn't converted it quite as much as they might have. The company's resentment was compounded by the fact that the cattle boat's propeller shaft sheared in two halfway across the pond, and the replacement took interminable days to fit, while we bobbed around under unfriendly grey skies, tossed this way and that by the waves like a cork in a bathtub full of overexcited toddlers. With our meagre rehearsal days being swallowed up by the delay, we'd been frantically trying to practice our show, the wow-wows, in the ship's dining room, but a combination of the rolling and yawing of the vessel and the smell of the recycled grease coming from the kitchen would quickly drive us all up onto the deck, where we'd grimly compare the greenness or otherwise of our gills and try our level best to hold on to our breakfasts. 
As if that wasn't enough, the damned tub wasn't even heading to New York. It was chugging with aching slowness towards the St Lawrence River in Montreal, where we would have to embark upon a gruelling overnight railway journey, which would only just get us to our destination in time to step straight onto the stage for our first performance, underrested, underwashed and underprepared. None of us was particularly happy about any of this, and Charlie was squarely taking the blame, which was why he was desperately clowning about the place with the charm turned up to full blast, trying to get us all back on side. "'Come on, everyone!' he cried. "'How about a team photograph, eh? Something to remember this whole—' "'Ordeal,' Mike Asher muttered. "'Nightmare,' Emily Seaman chipped in. "'Experience, I was going to say. This adventure! Come on, Arthur, help me whip this miserable bunch into order!' Some memento this was going to make, I thought, with all the scarves and hats and upturned collars hiding our wind-slapped faces, but I watched as Charlie ushered the company into two lines, one standing and one sitting or kneeling like a football team. Chaplin himself sat in the middle of the front row, the team captain, with the lifebelt still around his shoulders, framing him, picking him out, setting him apart, while the rest of the company huddled around him in their winter coats, trying to force a smile into the teeth of an Atlantic gale. There was our sturdy four-square company manager, Alf Reeves, and his wife, lovely Amy Minister. I'd been a guest at their wedding just a few months earlier, a slap-up affair which anyone who was anyone in British Music Hall had attended. Fred Carno himself had been the best man, mainly because Alf hadn't dared to ask anyone else to do it. Amy was a lovely girl, but her marriage to the boss had brought out the latent schoolma'am in her, and while she might still join in giggling mischief with the rest of us, she was just as likely to tut her disapproval. There were two more married couples on the strength, namely George and Emily Seaman and Fred and Muriel Palmer. The Seamans were hardened Carno lifers and had quickly taken the younger Palmers under their wings on this benighted crossing. Frank Melroyd and Bert Williams I didn't know particularly before this trip, but they seemed to be stand-up fellows. Frank was a paunchy, comfortable fellow who would happily sit on the sidelines, rarely contributing much to conversations. He would just be... there... He was balding, a project only a couple of years away from success, I'd say, and he nearly always wore a dark blue knitted cardigan instead of a waistcoat, which made him seem a generation older than he really was, somehow. Birch was also quiet and had a very distinctive laugh that whistled through his teeth. Which may have been a ventriloquist thing. He once had a solo act with a dummy that he unfortunately lost in a card game to a rival and which sadly went on to have a much more successful career without him. Then there were the young bloods, my friends Stan Jefferson, Mike Asher, and Freddie Carno Jr., the governor's son, who was to be performing with us for the first time. Stan was great company, a terrific giggler with a laugh that transformed his whole long, thin face. His bright red hair grew vertically upwards out of the top of his head and wouldn't sit down flat, whatever he did to it. Mike Asher was a dapper little fellow, slightly round-shouldered, but always immaculately turned out, his hair oiled and slicked down just so, with a centre parting you could use to navigate by. America is the land of opportunity, he was saying often around that time, and you never know when that opportunity may come, be it business or romance, so it's imperative to be ready to advance at all times. Freddie Jr., by contrast, always looked as though he'd been dragged through a hedge backwards. It was strange, we all agreed, since his father, the governor, was famed for his trademark shiny shoes, that you would often find Freddie in a disgracefully scuffed and flapping pair of old boots, on occasion not even laced up. He would jam his unruly hair under a herringbone newsboy cap that would drive Mike to despair. "'You know, Fred,' he'd say, "'I don't know if I should even be seen out with you. Who knows what chances may go begging?' Mike's habit was to sport a rather fancy felt fedora, unless he'd been so careless as to leave it lying around, in which case it would likely be jauntily perched on Tilly's head, that being the fashion for independent-minded ladies at that time. There was Albert Austin, a tall, thin, pale, lugubrious chap of a type that my mother would have characterised as a yard of pump water.' Albert believed that the sun shone out of the chaplain backside, 
and since that pretty much chimed in with the little man's own view of the grand scheme of things, he and Charlie were fairly matey. He finished showing a Ken Rona crewman which lever on the camera to press and when, and then skipped into the front row to crouch beside his hero. On Chaplin's other side, I couldn't help noticing with a sour feeling in my stomach, which had nothing to do with the movements of the boat, was Tilly Beckett, her arm linked ever so chummily with his. And lastly, stuck on the end of the row, the glowering, narrow-eyed expression on his face captured in black and white forever, I have the photograph still, was me, your humble narrator, Arthur Dando. And yes, it's my real name. Now, when I called as the famous Fred Carno Comedy Company, I mean, of course, that we were just one of the many comedy companies belonging to the famous Fred Carno organisation. At that very moment, there were probably at least a dozen similar aggregations of musical journeymen and journey women travelling up and down the British Isles trawling for laughs. This particular company was just the one that happened to be heading for America and vaudeville. But before I start telling you about what happened when we got there, perhaps I should tell you a bit about how we got this far. Chaplin and I had joined Fred Carno at about the same time, some three years before, arriving at the Governor's Fun Factory by very different routes. Charlie was born into show business, with parents who were both singers on the halls. He was a performer as a child, appearing in all kinds of stage plays and comedy routines, and as a clog dancer for a time, believe it or not, before his half-brother Sid, who was already working as one of Carno's most trusted number one comics, managed to pester the Governor into giving his kid brother a go. My family, on the other hand, were no help at all. They were all servants at a Cambridge college, and I was a junior porter there when I somehow got myself involved in a Footlights production, which required me to be eaten by a large and frankly dangerous mechanical dinosaur. Carno came to see the beast, which didn't impress, but he ended up giving me a job. We learnt the ropes together, Charlie and I, touring the country, picking up the Carno repertoire as we went, making our way up the company's hierarchy, and naturally enough a rivalry developed between us. Finally, there came a time when the governor was looking to promote someone to number one status and couldn't decide between the two of us. He set up a contest which captured the imagination of the whole music hall community. We would both play the lead role in Carno's hit sketch, The Football Match, on the same day, Charlie playing the matinee and myself the evening show, and then he would make his decision. The situation was complicated somewhat when Fred Carno took me aside and promised to swing the thing in my favour if only I would help him out with another little problem of his. He wanted to divorce his wife, but she was having none of it, so he asked me to compromise her and testify to her infidelity in court. Well, Edith Carno was a friend of mine, and the mother of my chum Freddie Jr. to boot, and so, in the end, I told the governor in no uncertain terms that I would not oblige him. Nonetheless, on the big day the contest was going pretty well for me, until a malicious heckler disrupted my rhythm, and one of the ex-professional footballers in the cast contrived to break my knee and Charlie became the new number one, while I retired to Cambridge and contemplated leaving the business altogether. I did return to Carno's Fun Factory, but without enjoying the favour that had been mine previously. Then I discovered that Charlie and his brother Sid had been deliberately sabotaging my chances all along. They'd hired that heckler to undermine me, and had paid the footballer to put me in the hospital. Now by this time, Charlie was looking forward to making this trip to America as a number one. He'd recruited my friends Stan and Mike and had lined up Tilly too, hoping to drive a wedge, a considerable geographical wedge the size of the Atlantic, between us. I, naturally, had been labelled not required on voyage. However, I was able to use what I'd found out to, well, to blackmail him, not to put too fine a point on it. I forced him to add me to the strength, and then the understanding was that he would fail to turn up for the crossing or else I would go straight to Carno, spill the beans about his dirty tricks, and that would be the end of his career. It didn't quite work out that way, as you will have gathered. At the last minute, Alf refused to travel without his number one, so I had to get Charlie to come along or the whole trip would have been off. 
I went back to London to find him, and when I did, he was in a sorry state indeed. Hadn't eaten, hadn't shaved, hadn't been taking care of himself at all. I thought for a horrible moment that he might even have done himself in. When he realised that we really were heading for the boat train and that his career had been given a stay of execution, he perked right up. He grasped my hand and thanked me profusely. Then he shot me his most dazzling toothy smile and said, "'Friends?' "'Friends,' I'd agreed. Ever since he'd been nice as pie to me, nicer even. It was gratitude, of course, for me letting him off the hook, but it wasn't just that. He knew that I still had all the evidence that I'd collected during my stint as an amateur detective, and I could still pass it on to Fred Carno at any time.' That card was lodged firmly up my sleeve, and that is where he wanted it to stay. Charlie Chaplin trying so hard to be my friend wasn't easy to take, let alone reciprocate. The memory of the many underhand ways he'd tried to do me down was still raw. However, I suppose I had more in common with Charlie than I did with most people walking the planet. Civilians, in other words. People who would never get to wield what I called the power. That feeling that I got on stage when everything was going my way... Time seemed to slow down, and the audience was in the palm of my hand. We both had our sights set on making it to the very top of the comedy business. We'd each tried to come to America without the other, but had been obliged to travel together. And there was one other significant thing we had in common. I'll come to that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 2. City Lights. We finally arrived in New York on a Monday at the crack of dawn, and as we straggled out into Grand Central Station, grey, aching, travel-soiled and sleep-deprived, lugging our trunks and the costume cases behind us, none of us was feeling remotely funny. Which, considering we were due on stage later that same afternoon, and again twice more that evening, was not ideal. The station was still being built, or extended, or finished off at that time, and consequently a cacophony of head-ringing hammer blows greeted our arrival, and we spilled out onto the street wearing a fine film of granite dust. 
Outside, we slumped on our bags on the pavement, while Alf set about finding some transportation for us. It had been a brutal journey. The Cairnrona had meandered slowly up the St Lawrence to Montreal in Quebec, several days behind schedule. Once there, we'd all hustled to the railway station to embark on a seven-hour train journey around the northern shoreline of Lake Ontario to Toronto. With barely a moment to catch our breath, we then bundled ourselves and our baggage straight onto an overnight train down to New York, crossing into the United States at Niagara Falls in the early evening, but without so much as a moment to stop off for sightseeing. Alf had been unable to secure sleeping compartments, so we were all condemned to sit bolt upright as we rattled through the night. Every now and then a clanging bell and a cloud of hissing steam would signal a station stop, often a place with a name that was familiar yet somehow disorientating, Rochester, Rome, Amsterdam, or else an increasingly alien collection of syllables, Utica, Schenectady, Poughkeepsie. Now we just wanted to sleep for about a week. Even though it was early in the morning, the city was coming to life. Throngs of people were streaming out of the station and heading to whatever work they had to do, and we watched them go by with the thespian's traditional pity for the early bird. On the opposite side of the broad thoroughfare, we could see some fellows sitting out on the pavement reading the New York Times. Their seats were raised unusually high, so that they would have to clamber up a couple of steps to get on board, and they were smart-looking chaps too, with top hats and smart top coats. Then the crowd of pedestrians passing in front of them thinned momentarily, and we realised that there were other fellows crouching in front of them, shining their shoes. Stan wrinkled his nose at this. Not a particularly dignified way to start the day, is it? he sniffed. I don't think I'd like to have the horse muck scraped off my shoes in front of the world and his wife. Charlie, though, was at that moment inspecting his own shoe, one leg thrust out straight, turning his ankle from side to side. He was just about to cross the road to see about getting a shine when Alf Reeves returned, leaping down from the front of the first of two horse-drawn carts he'd managed to hire. "'All aboard!' he shouted, clapping his hands. "'Let's get these bags on the back, shall we?' "'I'll thank you not to refer to my wife that way,' said George Seaman, beating the other married man to the punch by a split second. Fred Palmer grinned amiably at this defeat and reached for his luggage. Charlie swung his own trunk up onto the second cart, then turned round and grabbed the handles of mine. "'Here, Arthur, let me get that for you.' he said with a cheerful grin. That's all right, I said, but he was already hefting it up onto the backboard. No trouble, old pal, Charlie cried, and then skipped up to take a seat. Stan gave me a quizzical look, but I just shrugged and climbed up too. The carts swung out across the road then, and we got our first look at the great metropolis, its wide roads, its improbably tall buildings, and its people scuttling every which way. The middle of the main roads was given over to trolleys, these were slow-moving, and pedestrians stepped out right in front of them, almost as if they were not there. They oozed along, only twenty or thirty yards apart, and they were enclosed, not like the open omnibuses of London. The impression they gave was that the humans were sharing their city with a race of giant mollusks. We reached Broadway and swung north through the theatre district. Of course we weren't seeing it at its best, lights off, doors shuttered, the much-vaunted playhouses looking like closed shops. I saw the Victoria go by, the famed vaudeville house in Times Square, and the Gaiety, where someone called Hale Hamilton was appearing as get-rich-quick Wallingford, who I presumed would be a character in the Mike Asher vein. My friends were all looking around, eyes wide, and I could tell they were thinking the same as I was. Broadway! Is this... it? We clopped slowly on and on. The theatres were fewer and farther between now. Broadway became a great wide boulevard lined with comfortable-looking residences, and just when we were sure that we were out of the theatre district altogether, we came upon the Colonial Theatre, our home for the next week. 
We had wondered on the way over how different the American vaudeville theatres would be from the music halls we were used to back in London. As it turned out, the Colonial was built by a crazed enthusiast of British music hall, so once we filed in through the stage door, it could hardly have felt more familiar. The effect was just anticlimactic enough to suck the last bit of life from our weary bodies, and we slumped into the seats in the tiny green room, which smelt, as green rooms everywhere smelt, vaguely of feet, without even bothering to take our coats off. Huh. Long way to come for this, Asher muttered, folding his arms and closing his eyes for a kip. Tilly sat beside me and gave me a weak smile. So this is the start of our American adventure, eh? I shrugged, tried to think of something breezy to say, but I was just too tired. In any case, Tilly wouldn't have been awake to hear it, and the whole company seemed to be winding down like a set of clockwork automata that had lost its keys. Suddenly there was a tramping of boots on the stairs outside, and we were joined by a snorting presence akin to a bull that was minded to lay waste to a china shop. "'What ho! Hail, fellows! Well met at long last! What news of old Blighty?' Ruddy of face and jovial of demeanour, and distressingly well-rested, it was our missing colleague, Charles Griffiths. We hadn't seen him since he'd gone to his cabin on the Lusitania for a bit of a nap. He'd woken up to find he was making the crossing solo, and he'd been in New York for a week and a half. His arrival was greeted with groans and the odd moan of, "'Leave me alone,' coupled with a mumbled, "'Keep it down, can't you?' "'Well, aren't you a sorry-looking bunch of sad sacks?' Griffiths bellowed. He might have been talking normally, but to our tired ears he did seem to be bellowing. I must say I was most surprised to wake up on the Lusitania and discover that the rest of you had made alternative arrangements. You missed a rare treat, you know. Ah, what luxury! I've never seen the like of it! The food! The comfort! The service! It was without a doubt the very best week of my entire life! This monologue brought on some jeering, and a boot thrown by an unseen hand clipped Griffith's trilby from his head, at which he laughed heartily. Alf, there you are, he cried, spotting our company manager in the corridor. Got your wire, and I've organised the accommodation just as you asked. Here. He fumbled in his jacket pockets for a piece of paper. We can all move in tomorrow. Alf gaped at him. Tomorrow? Where will we sleep tonight? Griffiths was amiably perplexed. Aren't we going to be going out on the town? Celebrating? Everyone was following this conversation, and this was greeted with a chorus of jeers. We'll need to sleep somewhere, you lummox. Alf's shoulders sagged. Like the rest of us, he'd hardly slept at all on the train journey down from Canada, so this felt like the final straw. "'I'll go and book us all into the hotel next door,' he said. "'Now don't you all fall asleep, you lot, as we've got the band call, and then we've got a show to do. Two shows. Mr Griffiths, you are responsible.' "'Aye, aye, Captain!' Charlie Griffiths said. Alf headed out towards the stage door, and Griffiths clapped his hands together. "'Come on, everyone! Wakey, wakey!' There was a loud moan from the assembled company, and no one made a move to get to their feet. Indeed, one or two people began rolling their coats into pillows for their heads and stretching out on the chairs and sofas. "'All right,' Griffith said. Five more minutes!' He sat down, stretched his legs out across the rug, and placed his hands together across his ample belly. I could barely keep my eyes open, but I did stay awake long enough to see Chaplin sidle over to where Tilly was lying with her head resting on the dozing Amy's legs, and he placed a coat solicitously over her shoulders. Her eyes half opened and she smiled her thanks. I gritted my teeth. Because Tilly Beckett was the other thing Charlie and I had in common. The important thing to remember is, I saw her first. At the time, Charlie was mooning around after a young dancer, a very young dancer, called Hetty Kelly, and he was wafting into work every morning, waxing lyrical about the divine smell of her soap and such like. No wonder she gave him the bum's rush. Tilly and I first met down at the Fun Factory, Carno's headquarters in Camberwell, and I was captivated at once. 
She was bright and funny and so attractive, with her cascade of blonde ringlets and twinkling green eyes. I just couldn't stop thinking about her. Soon Tilly and I both found ourselves supers in a carno show called Won't Detain You, in which we were required simply to cling to the railings of a vast ocean liner as it bucked and tossed in a fake storm. To alleviate the tedium of being merely human scenery, we concocted a storyline for ourselves in which we were secretly married and eloping to America together, just a bit of harmless, flirty fun to pass the time. However, Tilly then blurted out one evening that we were actually married in order to deflect the amorous attentions of young Freddie Carno Jr., who was then working on the admin side of things for his old man. Freddie, meaning well, added her to the strength of the company that I was touring with at the time, and saw to it that we were assigned married accommodations. Well, I suppose we could have straightened out that misunderstanding there and then, but we didn't, and we passed several happy weeks living as man and wife before the roof fell in. So, you see, our romance was all the wrong way round, beginning with married bliss before we'd had a proper courtship. Anyway, Charlie got wind of our little charade, and either out of jealousy or a desire to see me, his nearest rival, knocked back. He went to his brother, Sid, who was the number one of the company, and shopped us. Tilly was booted out, and I was offered the choice of leaving with her or staying without her. My girl or my career. I should have gone with her. I see that now. But at the time, the idea of giving the chaplains the satisfaction of getting shot of me just stuck in my craw, and before I really knew what had happened, she was gone. I didn't see Tilly again for more than a year. I did everything I could think of to track her down, even going to South End to search for her parents to see if they had word of her whereabouts, but to no avail. Then I was in Paris with Charlie, appearing at the Folie Bergère in Mummingbirds, about which more in due course. While we were there, he struck up a clandestine romance with a chorus girl from the headline act, which was the celebrated French singer and comedienne, Miss Danguette. I stumbled across Charlie having supper with his new paramour one evening, and lo and behold, it was Tilly Beckett. A furious fistfight ensued, during which Charlie and I attempted to knock seven bells out of one another. I'm pretty sure I knocked at least five out of him, maybe even six. And then I declared myself to Tilly, told her how miserable I'd been, and how I felt about her but La Belle Miss Danguette had plans to marry her off to some ghastly German aristocrat from the Hohenzollerns, and I left Paris convinced that I would never see her again. I was wrong about that, though, because Tilly suddenly wrote that she was returning to England and auditioning for Carno. I was thrilled, but then Freddie Jr. told me exactly what an audition with his father consisted of. When I saw Tilly, I could not shake the mental image of her and the governor together, and I rejected her, drove her away. Stupid, stupid boy. Shortly after that, I left Carno to nurse the broken knee which Charlie had kindly arranged for me, as I mentioned earlier, and when I returned, Charlie had resumed his courtship of Tilly, and I was forced to watch him pressing his oleaginous attentions on her. His scheme, quite clearly, was to whisk her away with him to the States, leaving me, his rival, behind. I'd had a similar plan, of course, but as it turned out, there all three of us were in New York, our fortunes bound inextricably together for the foreseeable. But where did we stand, really? Suddenly I was hauled abruptly back from the land of Nod by an anguished cry. I looked up, rubbing my eyes, and saw that the whole company, all fifteen members, were snoozing. Right in the middle, Charlie Griffiths lay with his feet up, snoring away like a champion. "'Griffiths, you big lump!' Alf was shouting. "'Didn't I say you were responsible?' "'Oh! Ha-ha! Ah!' Griffiths spluttered, struggling to his feet. "'You've missed the bloody band call, and the matinee has already started. We're on in twenty minutes! Twenty minutes! Up! Everyone, up!' Costume, makeup, come on! Grumbling and mumbling, the company stirred into a faint simulacrum of life, and we traipsed up the stairs with Alf Reeves goading us all the way. Once on the stage, a modicum of professionalism kicked in. We launched into the sketch without intro music and only a rough idea of where our props might be. 
We were able to work out how to get on and off without breaking a leg, not as lucky as theatre people make it sound, by the way, because the English-style colonial theatre was so very like so many we'd played before that we could almost do this in our sleep, which was a bit of luck. We didn't exactly set the place on fire that day, either in the matinee or the evening. The Wowows wasn't Carno's finest offering, not by any means, but his very best work on its best day would have struggled to maintain a proper comedy momentum if four, yes, four, members of his cast had actually nodded off on stage at various points during the performance. I put my arm around Alf's shoulders as we walked into the hotel next door at the end of the night. Never mind, I said. Be better tomorrow. It'll need to be, he muttered, or not even Carno's name will save us. <laughs>